You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. Good afternoon. Good morning. If you're on the West Coast, I am Tamara Cherry reporting, reporting live, reporting. I'm not a reporter anymore. I'm talking to you. I used to be a reporter, CTV News, up until a couple years ago. Now I am just talking to you from Regina, Saskatchewan. Right now, the prime minister is holding a bilateral meeting with the president of the European Parliament. The prime minister will be addressing European Parliament in the next half hour. We will sure be sure to bring you the details of that. U.S. President Biden arrives in Brussels this afternoon. European Union, NATO and G7 leaders will gather for the rest of the week to build on their coordinated response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It has been nearly four weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine. Western nations have imposed sanctions against Russia and provided powerful weapons for Ukraine. The Pentagon says Russia has lost more than 10 percent of its combat power and that 7000 of its soldiers have been killed. But none of this has stopped the war. Earlier today, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg held a pre-summit news conference. President Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine is causing death and destruction every day. Allies stand united in support for the brave people of Ukraine and against the Kremlin's cruelty. Stoltenberg called on Putin to end the war provide safe passage for aid, and engage in diplomacy. There are now hundreds of thousands of Allied troops at heightened readiness across the lines. 100,000 U.S. troops in Europe and 40,000 forces under direct NATO command, mostly in the eastern part of the alliance. All backed by major air and naval power. At the summit tomorrow, Stoltenberg said that he expects leaders to strengthen NATO's posture, increasing forces on land, in the air and at sea. The first step, he said, will be to deploy four new NATO battle groups in Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia, bringing to eight the number of multinational battle groups along the eastern flank from the Baltic to the Black Sea. We face a new reality for our security. So we must reset our deterrence and defense for the longer term. Allies have stepped up military support, financial aid, and are hosting millions of refugees. Stoltenberg said he expects additional support to be pledged tomorrow. Including cybersecurity assistance, as well as equipment to help Ukraine protect against chemical, biological, and radiological and nuclear threats. Stoltenberg called Putin's invasion brutal and the human suffering horrifying and painful to witness. He said that NATO is determined to to provide all the support it can to Ukraine. But we have a responsibility to ensure that the war does not escalate beyond Ukraine and become a conflict between NATO and Russia. This would cause even more death and even more destruction. Stoltenberg said he expects leaders to call on China to live up to its responsibilities, 
refrain from supporting Russia's war effort and call for an immediate end to this war. Beijing has joined Moscow in questioning the right of independent nations to choose, to choose their own path. China has provided Russia with political support, including by spreading blatant lies and disinformation. Stoltenberg said the decisions made tomorrow will have far-reaching implications. In the question and answer period of the news conference, a reporter from Sky News raised a question that, of course, has been on everybody's minds for the last four weeks when he asked what the Secretary General, how NATO would defend itself against a nuclear attack. Because on Russian state media, the Sky News reporter noted, they are talking in pretty straight and stark terms about a nuclear attack. This is dangerous and it is irresponsible. NATO is there to protect and defend all allies. And we convey a very clear message to Russia that the nuclear war can not be won and should never be fought. Russia's rhetoric highlights the importance of ending the war in Ukraine, NATO Secretary General said. And so NATO leaders and G7 leaders, including our prime minister, will no doubt be focusing their attention there in the coming days in Ukraine as they brainstorm ways to not escalate this war to a nuclear one, to not escalate it to a conflict that goes beyond Ukraine's borders. And if you were listening yesterday, you remember you may remember our conversation with a resident of Ukraine who remains in her apartment building in downtown Kyiv. And she was calling on Canadians to call on their government, to call on our government to enforce that no-fly zone. She said, enforce the no-fly zone. We need it. Without it, our country will will I, will look like Mariupol does. And Mariupol, of course, has been absolutely pounded by the Russian forces, has been under near constant bombardment, uh, and has all but been reduced to rubble from one end of this, the port city to another. But of course... When Western leaders are gathering, uh, from what from what we have heard from from uh, our leaders and from our military experts, some of whom we'll hear from later in the show, uh, that no fly zone is not likely to happen because, as the NATO Secretary General said, while they would like to pledge all the support they can to Ukraine, their focus is also on ensuring that this war does not reach beyond Ukraine's borders. So I mentioned earlier today that our prime minister will be addressing the European Parliament in the next half hour. We expect him to speak about peace and security, defending democracy and transatlantic cooperation. And coming up after the break, we will hear from the international affairs writer for the Canadian press, Mike Blanchfield, who can tell us a little bit more about what we can expect from Trudeau, not only during that address to the European Parliament, but in the days to come. This is, of course, a whirlwind trip uh, to Europe for our prime minister and for other NATO and G7 leaders uh, as they try to hammer out some new details of their coordinated efforts against Russia and in support of Ukraine uh, by the end of the week. Later, a little bit later on in the show, we will hear from retired Lieutenant General, the Honorable Andrew Leslie. Uh, we will get his thoughts on what is going on in Ukraine uh, and what is happening with our leaders and their meeting in uh, Europe today and in the coming days and what he thinks Canada may or may not pledge in the days to come. Then a little bit later on in the show, we're going to talk about a survey that says that three in 10 Canadians 
would never vote conservative. And I wonder, are you one of those Canadians? If our if our text word is any indication, I would I would um, assume that many of you are not those Canadians, but some of you may be. And perhaps we can hear from you a little bit later on in the show. But three in 10 Canadians say that they would never vote conservative. This is interesting when we consider a study out of Alberta from earlier this week that showed that young people are are leaving the the province like like they have not done so in at all over the last couple of decades. And part of the reason for that is the social conservatives conservatism of the province. So is this a trend that we might see uh, spreading across the country? We will talk to Nick Nanos from Nanos uh, Research coming up later in the show. And of course, uh, because it is Wednesday in the next hour, we will have our war room. That will be a discussion that you will not want to miss. So much to discuss, not only with the, the war in Ukraine, but of course, we can't forget the big news that hit Canada yesterday when the NDP and Liberal government uh, came out with an agreement that could see the minority liberal government supported by the NDP and in power until 2025. So I look forward to hearing from our pundits on that. Uh, and a little bit later on in the show after that, we're going to be talking about doctors, how they've been surviving this pandemic and why burnout is worse than ever. It might sound like an obvious thing, but we're gonna we're gonna speak with somebody who has been on the front lines of this, uh, supporting doctors, and hear what it is like for our our frontline healthcare workers. I am Tamara Cherry in for the final day of three for Evan Solomon. You're gonna have another guest fill in host tomorrow. Evan should be back next week, but for me, for now, you've got Tamara, and I'll have more for you after the break. Evan Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau arrived in Brussels early this morning. He will be addressing uh, European Parliament in the next 10 minutes or so, in fact. Uh, to, uh, but in the meantime, we heard from uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg this morning on what we can expect a little bit from the summit uh, of European Union uh, leaders, NATO leaders and G7 leaders, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in the days to come. Stoltenberg noted that allies have stepped up military support for Ukraine, financial aid for Ukraine and are hosting millions of Ukrainian refugees, but that he expects additional support to be pledged tomorrow. Including cybersecurity assistance, as well as equipment to help Ukraine protect against chemical, biological, and radiological, and nuclear threats. So to walk us through what we can expect uh, from our prime minister in Brussels in the days to come is Mike Blanchfield, international affairs writer for the Canadian Press. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure, Tamara. So, Mike, why don't we start out by the with the prime minister's address to European Parliament, which is going to be unrolling in the next 10 minutes or so. What do we expect to hear from Trudeau? Well, I think he's going to be developing a theme that we've heard um, in a recent speech he gave two weeks ago in Berlin that I actually covered on his late on his previous European trip, where he basically sets out this uh, narrative of you know the 
the, the clash between authoritarianism and democracy. And what he said in that speech was that, you know, democracy has been a little bit beat up in the last few years and needs some tending, and we need to rally together. So, uh, so it's kind of a uh, sort of a, a big vision speech, and it's also, um, I think it's also meant it'll be meant to sort of uh, provide sort of a, a show of solidarity uh, and sort of a, I guess, a shot in the arm from North America, from Canada to its European allies, because Europe is under such stress right now. There's a war on its borders, uh, massive you know refugee migration that we haven't seen in decades. Um, and, and Trudeau's done this before. Uh, in 2017, he did a, presented a similar speech to the European Parliament and, um, and also gave another big sort of foreign policy address to another German gathering in 2017. So what we're seeing sort of broken up over these two trips is uh, Trudeau sort of repeating this pattern, sort of giving a sort of a Canadian foreign policy 2.0, uh, you know, shall we say, you know, given, you know, the current, you know, extreme situation with um, the war in Ukraine and uh, and just the other shocks that the world has been absorbing for the last couple of years. Yeah, and there have been a lot of those shocks indeed. Um, in terms of what he can do beyond sharing that narrative of Canadian foreign policy, I mean, we just heard that clip from Jens Zoltenberg talking about uh, some of the pledges that he expects to come later this week, including cybersecurity assistance, equipment to help Ukraine protect against chemical, radiological and nuclear threats. Uh, Canada, from what we've heard, has sort of maxed out its military support for Ukraine uh, in terms of the the weapons and whatnot that we can provide to them. But what do you expect Canada's role to be in these talks in the coming days? And what sort of additional support do you expect that we will offer? Well, I spoke to Melanie Jolie, the foreign minister, yesterday, and she basically said there will be more contributions of weapons, uh, more sanctions are coming. She said that repeatedly in recent days. Um, So I think there's more... um, more mili- more direct, lethal military aid that Canada can supply. And the point that she made and that others make is that, um, you know, basically the Ukraine resistance has to, to be made strong and they can't um, negotiate with Russia to find a way out of this. Perhaps once they from the, down the barrel of a gun, they have to keep fighting. Uh, so there's that. Uh, but there's also this broader question of what Canada's overall military spending might look like moving forward. So NATO has this benchmark of they want military spending to be at 2% of GDP. Uh, Canada's is less than 1.5, 1.4 of GDP. Now, what's interesting, and what ministers like Jolie and Finance Minister Krista Freeland has noted, is that Germany recently stated its intention to uh, to boost its spending to 2% mm. of GDP, and it's giving weapons now. And what is and that is uh, a massive like sea change shift in German foreign policy because they you know they've always had a military but after world war ii they the german posture was less um it wasn't aggressive they didn't give weapons they didn't do this sort of thing now what given what is going on now they have shifted so there's this sense in canada and a lot of you know probably within nato that maybe a country like canada might have to be looking at boosting its defense budget and its defense so so what did germany what did germany's uh defense spending look like before their recent pledge to boost it how did it compare to ours um you know i don't have a chart in front of me but it was you know it was below two percent it was in right so it's a similar situation than what we're in general we're in the general ballpark put it that way so there's the point being is there's room for canada to move up 
and people are citing, and Canadian politicians are citing the German example. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the next federal budget with this. Interesting. Yeah, and Mike, I wonder if you have any insight, like any thoughts on what yesterday's announcement in terms of the the, the agreement, the so-called agreement that was uh, announced between the Liberals and the NDP, what sort of influence that may have on what we may see in the upcoming budget when it comes to military spending? Right, well, some of my, you know, one of my defense reporter colleagues was delving quite deeply into it yesterday. And, um, I mean, it, it's just, it basically raises the question of, um, how comfortable the NDP might be with voting for a budget that could have higher defense spending. Traditionally, that is not necessarily an NDP policy position, but if they've made an agreement with the liberals, the governing liberals to sort of have this agreement to not have force an election until 2025 and the, and the, and the NDP gets, you know, they can say they, they did something on pharmacare and this, this dental plan, um, there's going to be some political compromises that may have to be made, but it's uh, it's really going to be interesting to watch and to see how that goes. Uh, I can't see the Conservatives voting against an increase in defense spending. I think they would be in favor of that. So mm-hmm. um, it, it, there's a lot of moving parts that domestically and internationally on that whole question that, we're, that are going to be really interesting to watch in the coming weeks. Absolutely. What do you, I mean, can you speak sort of more broadly um, from a historical perspective of how you think we will be reflecting back on these meetings? Like how significant are these meetings that are happening at the summit this week? What What do you think it will symbolize in the years to come? And, and how important is it? How urgent are these meetings being looked at as now? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a council of war of the free world, <laughs> you, know, line, you know, trying to deal with this threat by Russia. Um so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's significant. It's historic. Um, you know, there have been meetings already. Uh, there have been, you know, the U.S. president will be there as well. He's making a point of coming. When I was in Europe a couple of weeks ago with the prime minister, the U.S. vice president was there, and Kamala Harris and, uh, and Prime Minister Trudeau met in, in uh, I believe it was Warsaw, yeah, in Poland, and they had a yep. meeting just like that, you know. And so, I mean, it's... Um, yeah, I mean, and if we'll look back on it, if things go well and we get out of this and there's a, a resolution of some kind, then, you know, the actions taken over the next few days and the decisions that flow out of it, the rhetoric and, and some of the some of the theater and just the message, uh, the show of solidarity that they're going to try to present is going to be, um, I mean, it'll be, it'll be studied for a long time and uh, yeah. we're all going to be watching it very closely. All right, Ma- Mike Blanchfield, th- thank you so much. I- I'm hurrying you along because I know you're on, in a rush to get out of here and your time is very limited today. Uh, so I really I take, appreciate I, you. Yep. I can take one, I can take one more quick one. <laughs> oh, well, we're, we're into our last minute anyway, but your, your insight has been invaluable here. And I think we're going to have to have you back uh, to talk about this to, as we see how the, the days to come develop. Uh, I appreciate your keen eye and your time, Mike. Mike Blanchfield is an international affairs writer for the Canadian press. Uh, really interesting insight there. And it, it is interesting to think about the fact that we are living history right now. And we hope that we can look back on these meetings uh, with a positive spin on them in the years to come. Coming up after the break, we will be speaking with retired Lieutenant General, the Honorable Andrew Leslie, get his insights as well as to what he thinks we can expect in the days to come from this NATO summit uh, as our leaders and G7 leaders are gathering in Brussels. I am Tamara Cherry in for Evan Solomon. We will have that and much more coming up after the break.
Welcome back to the Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Tamara Cherry, on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, U.S. President Joe Biden left the White House this morning for a four-day trip to Europe where he will meet with key allies to discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine. One of those allies, of course, being uh, Canada and Our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, is just about to speak, if he hasn't started already, in his address to European Parliament. Biden was asked, though, how concerned he is about the possibility of Russia using chemical weapons in Ukraine. I think it's a real threat. Earlier today, we heard from NATO Secretary General Jens Soltenberg, who held a pre-summit news conference. Stoltenberg said the decisions made tomorrow will have far reaching implications. And in the question and answer period of the news conference, a reporter from Sky News asked the secretary general how NATO would defend itself against a nuclear attack, because on Russian state media, the reporter said they're talking in pretty straight and stark terms about a nuclear attack. This is dangerous and it is irresponsible. NATO is there to protect and defend all allies, and we convey a very clear message to Russia that the nuclear war cannot be won and should never be fought. Joining us now to walk us through what we can expect from this summit and everything going on in Europe and Ukraine, uh, specifically right now, is retired Lieutenant General, the Honorable Andrew Leslie. He was the deputy commander of the NATO land forces in Afghanistan and the liberal member of parliament for Orleans. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Retired Lieutenant General, do we have you? Yes, you do. Hi, Tamara. Oh, there we go. Thanks so much for taking the time today. All right, so let's just jump right in. Starting on that, the question that uh, that the NATO Secretary General was posed today by that Sky News reporter in terms of how NATO would defend itself from a nuclear war. Um, are we at that conversation yet, would you say? Or, or is there too much right in front of us that we need to be concentrating on? Well, I mean, the potential threat of Armageddon is... Um is certainly something that we have to start talking about. We have to try and avoid it without giving in to um, essentially NATO surrendering against continued threat from Putin. I suspect the meeting tomorrow of NATO political leaders will be the single most important meeting since the foundation of NATO, which was put in place just after the Second World War, really to stop the Russian bear from rampaging across Europe. And here we are in 2022. Wow. Expand on that. The single most important meeting of NATO countries since the Second World War. Tell me what you think uh, these talks will entail tomorrow. NATO spent many, many decades trying to deter, in other words, persuade Russia not to attack because NATO had an overwhelming force available to it once Russia got nuclear weapons. And by the way, they have more than any other country in the world. And they're launched from missile fields in their eastern portion of the country and the west. They're also submarine and bomber launched, and uh, they can be launched by land. So there's lots of them. And the grave danger of anybody using even one nuke is that you can't really control or predict accurately what's going to happen. So the risk mitigation factors get really complicated really quickly. And I can't believe that we're even talking about it right now Mm. when, you know, this was supposed to be the end of such such tragic events, but but here we are. 
another danger is chemical weapons, which he's already threatened to do. And by the way, he's already supplied chemical weapons to Syria to use against the Syrian civilians. Mm -hmm. So it may not be an idle threat. What role do you think Canada will be playing in these talks? Because obviously, I mean, the the military support that we can provide is much smaller than other uh, NATO and G7 partners. But what role do you think that we would be providing in uh, Brussels? Well, I mean, just having a fact-based discussion, uh, Canada has the same gross domestic product as Russia. So we're a wealthy nation. We have a much smaller population, of course. Our armed forces are about 6 or 7% of that of the total of Russia. Uh, we could and should be doing more. And at the back of all our minds, I think we have to understand that unless it goes nuclear, in which case it could be the end of everything, um, the angry Russia will be around for many years to come. And the Cold War is back, except for it's a lot hotter than it used to be. So we're going to have to have deterrence forces, mm-hmm. ground forces, in significant numbers all along the NATO border uh, to dissuade not only Russia, but other people who may see the threat of violence or the use of violence as a way to change governments. And um, that is also the Indo-Pacific. So it means we're going to have to invest more in defense, like NATO's been asking us very pointedly to do for many decades. Do, do, you think that we can expect, sure. do, you, do you think we can expect uh, an announcement coming out of these meetings that, that that will be reflected in our upcoming budget, that we would meet that 2% GDP target for military spending? I would sincerely hope so, because I know for a fact that our variety of NATO allies are quite, quite frustrated with Canada's reluctance to move above 1.3-1.4% of our GDP and up to 2%. But there's also, I mean, you can spend all the money you want, but unless you're willing to send troops overseas to share in some of the risk, then it really doesn't matter how much you spend at home. And in that case, we have troops we can and should be contributing, roughly four or 5,000, probably going into Latvia to help form that ring of steel to act as deterrence. Look, Putin wouldn't have gone into the Ukraine a month ago with his 200,000 troops and 30 to 40,000 armored vehicles, unless he thought he could win. And the reason why he thought he could win is NATO wasn't ready. The one time they had to be ready, they weren't ready. And that's a conversation we should have with our senior elected officials if we have time to do so after this is over, because, you know, that's a failure. doesn't mitigate against Putin being the villain, because he is. But he obviously thought he could win because we couldn't deter it. Let's not make that mistake again to whoever follows Putin. You just pointed out that, you know, boosting our military spending doesn't mean anything if we aren't going to be contributing the troops. Um, if our government were to come back from this and, and say we're, we're committed to, to boosting our military spending up to the 2%, that will be reflected in our upcoming budget. What sort of real world difference would that make now or would it more so be for the long term? You can make a difference right now. As we saw when we were in Afghanistan not too long ago, the Army and the Air Force, who are the two main players from the Canada's contribution to Afghanistan, were short all sorts of stuff. And in the period of a matter of months, we bought enormous transport aircraft. We bought tanks. We bought big guns. We bought new weapon systems for our infantry. We bought radars. We bought drones. So the point is, if the prime minister is willing to actually do the work, he can pull these programs if the prime minister and the minister of finance are doing their jobs and they really want it to happen, it can happen. So, for example, the armed forces right now needs a large injection of funds so they can do training to increase their readiness. They can buy spare parts. They can buy ammunition. 
They're 10,000 people short right now of their established strength. So they need money to get those people through the doors. And as well, we could buy short-range anti-tank missiles like we've seen used in Ukraine, Javelin. We don't have any of those. We can use some handheld anti-aircraft systems, Stinger. We don't have any of those. We can use bigger anti-aircraft systems. We can reinforce the Arctic because right now it's essentially undefended. We can buy drones to look out over the seas and the approaches. So there's all sorts of things we can do, but we've got to do them. We've got to stop talking about them and actually do them. And we know it can happen because I've seen conservative and liberal governments do it in the recent past. We just got a minute left here, but is, would you say that's the number one thing you're looking for coming out of this summit, a, a commitment to that to that spending and to let the armed forces, you know, acquire what they need moving forward? NATO needs two things, in my opinion. They need allies to not only say the talk, but they got to walk the walk. So they got to contribute to beefing up their defense capabilities at home. And they have to be willing to send troops, air, land, and sea, to act as a deterrent force and to be an effective deterrent, you got to be able to fight if it's required. you got to fight and win. And we should be doing more because right now, quite frankly, our numbers are minuscule. We haven't done a good job of providing Ukraine weapons. We refuse to reply to provide them any for the five years prior when they were begging for them, poor folk. And, yeah, so let's stop talking and start doing All right. We'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your time. Retired Lieutenant General, the Honorable Andrew Leslie. He was the Deputy Commander of the NATO Land Forces in Afghanistan and the Liberal Member of Parliament for Orleans. Coming up after the break, three in 10 Canadians refuse to vote Conservative. We'll break it down. All the numbers from a new poll. Listening to the Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, there's a lot going on in the world, as we know, as we have been talking about, and our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is addressing European Parliament right now. We will have some clips from his address coming up for the in the war room uh, after this next break. But first, there's a there is, in case you forgot, there is there's stuff going on in Canada, too, with a little thing called the conservative leadership race. And there's a new poll out today that will be of interest, no doubt, uh, for the people running in that race. Walking uh, Here to walk us through it today is Nick Nanos, chief data scientist at Nanos Research. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time. It's great to join you and all your listeners. Okay, so let's hop right into this first one, because there is actually another poll I'd like to discuss with you, too. But three in 10 Canadians say they would never vote conservative. Break that down for me. Well, I guess the upside is seven in 10 might. Right. Like we Mm -hmm. we could go half full or half empty. But in the survey that we did for uh, CTV News Power Play, we basically wanted to unpack the direction that Canadians wanted the Conservative Party to go in from an ideological point of view. And we just finished the survey on the weekend, so it's fresh out of that gate. But interesting enough, you know, although 30% of Canadians said that they'd never vote Conservative, about 29% um, actually thought that they that what they'd like to see would for the Conservatives to be socially progressive and more centrist on economic issues. That was the top response. And then the one after that was to be uh, socially progressive, but right-wing on economic issues. Actually, for those that think that the Conservative Party should tilt to the right, 
uh, that was only about 19% of Canadians. So Canadians much more likely to add a little more progressiveness or centrism, so to speak, to the Conservative brand in order to be appealing to voters. So how do you expect the, the, the candidates that are in the race at this point to adjust their campaigns, if at all, in the, in the weeks and months to come? Well, that's the kicker. Right, because the fact of the matter is is that Canadians are not selecting the next leader of the Conservative Party. It is rank-and-file, card-carrying Conservative members. Mm-hmm. And this speaks to, you know, what would work in a general election. So the survey was of Canadians, and it speaks to the fact that a Conservative Party that was a little more centrist would probably have a greater level of appeal. But what we don't know, because no one has that member, the elusive membership list, which mm-hmm. I should say it doesn't even exist because they're still selling members. It's like a work in progress. Right. Um, you know, but my sense is that uh, con- card-carrying conservative members would probably be a little more socially conservative and conservative on economic issues. So how do you square the circle? That's the big question on this Absolutely. one, if, if you're running for the leadership. Absolutely. Do you think, Nick, that the results of this poll would have been different had had the poll been conducted after the uh, the agreement that was announced between the Liberals and the NDP yesterday? Yeah, who knows? Actually, it might be that people want, would want more people would want the Conservatives to move more towards the centre because the fact of the matter is is that when we look at what has been announced between the Liberals and the New Democrats, the Liberals have now firmly anchored themselves not just as progressives but progressive left uh, under Justin Trudeau by. Uh, by the parliamentary agreement that they now have. And I think for some Canadians, a significant proportion, they feel that the centre has been abandoned because it's yet to be determined where the Conservatives might land, depending on who they select as the leader of the next Conservative Party of Canada. We've had a lot going on, obviously, in this country over the last couple of years, but uh, perhaps most significantly, when it, when we talk about you know some of the divisiveness stuff that's going on in this country, we had the convoy uh, just last month. Do you think that any of that has played into the numbers that you're seeing in this poll? Yeah, for sure. And uh, you know the thing is, is you know an interesting thing is we, we, every week we ask Canadians what the top unprompted national issue of concern. They can say whatever they want. And I've been doing polling now for 35 years. Something's been on the radar over the last few weeks that we've never, ever seen before. That is Canadians, unprompted, which means they can say whatever they want, saying that their top concern is freedom of speech or freedom. Hmm. And uh, that's been on the radar now for the last number of weeks. It's now in the number two position following the pandemic. People are more likely to be worried about the pandemic. But number two is uh, freedom and freedom of speech. Probably explains why why leadership hopeful Pierre Poiliev has been uh, cozy, why don't we just say, Mm -hmm. and using a lot of the same type of language that we saw from the uh, truckers' convoy. So I I think the truckers' convoy has had an impact uh, on the race. But the thing is, is it's probably more likely to have an impact on rank-and-file party members than of Canadians writ large. All right. Speaking of freedom, actual freedom is uh, something that obviously is not coming easily for people in Ukraine today. You had another poll out uh, talking about Canadian sport support for further sanctions, uh, but hesitancy to go to war with Russia. Tell us about these numbers. Yeah, in this uh, in this survey that was just released today, and it was done by CTV and the Global Mail together, when we asked Canadians about potential actions that the government could take, the two that were most likely to be supported 
included increasing economic sanctions against Russia, um, and even in the face of prices going up and stuff like that, and also using Canadian tax dollars to uh, airlift Ukrainian refugees to Canada. Those were the two, about almost eight out of every 10 Canadians, or more than eight out of every 10, supported or somewhat supported those two things. Now, going to war, a little more of uh, a mixed bag. Um, you know, asking straight out about Canada going to war as part of NATO with Russia over the Ukraine, Canadians generally were split. About 47% were supporting or somewhat supporting that, but another uh, 45%, so almost split down the middle, were against. And uh, even on the idea of a no-fly zone, Canadians were divided on Mm. whether to support a no-fly zone. So more economic sanctions, yes. Helping to get Ukrainian refugees out, absolutely. Um, But when it comes to fighting in the Ukraine, over the Ukraine, over what is happening today or the no-fly zone, it's much more divisive. Now, when we when you talk about fighting uh, in Ukraine, fighting against Russia, was that question posed just in general, or are we talking about if it comes to that, how supportive of you would would you be? You know, if if this became a NATO versus Russia war, how supportive would you be? Are these people talking about you know whether they want troops on the ground right now? Well, this is basically, you know, the question was. Canada, as part of NATO, going to war with Russia over the Ukraine. So that's basically Mm. war is war. And it it speaks to Canadians being divided. So, you know, just as many, about just as many Canadians support or somewhat support that as uh, oppose or somewhat oppose. Oh, that's interesting. How do you think, do you think this will have any impact on the talks that are happening in the days to come in Brussels? Well, you know, I think it it speaks to the fact that uh, Canadians are very supportive and empathetic of the Ukrainians. and they're very plugged into what's happening. They want to do anything possible to help the Ukraine, but that when it comes to the use of force, um, that would be more of a last resort. Now, that said, one of the other questions that we asked, if Russia went into another country other than the Ukraine, actually the support for going to war jumps about 20 percentage points. So if this expands beyond the Ukraine... Canadians are much more likely to be game for uh, for kind of more formal action against Russia. Yeah, and we're all hoping it does not expand beyond Ukraine. Uh, all right, Nick Nanos, Chief Data Scientist at Nanos Research. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Coming up after the break, The War Room, where we will break down with our panel of specialists all the big news in Canadian politics. I'm Tamara Cherry, in for Evan Solomon. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. There's a lot going on today. Our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, just finished addressing European Parliament. We're going to be talking a little bit about that coming up in the next segment. But it's time to time to start the war room. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The war room. 
Joining us today is Zane Valji, a political campaign strategist and partner at Northweather. He formerly worked with Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenchi and Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley. And Zane, I understand you're filling in for Evan tomorrow. Is that right? Uh, big shoes to fill, not just for Evan, but for you. So happy to be on now and, uh, uh, and tra- trailering what tomorrow looks yeah, like. Right. All right. Thank you. Uh, also joining us today, Tom Mulcair, CTV News political analyst and former NDP leader. Good afternoon, sir. Hey, good afternoon. Two days in a row for you and me. Yeah, lucky me. And Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies. Welcome to the War Room, Tim. Uh, Tamara, you don't have anything you can add for me? I seem like a failure next to those. Tim, Tim, we haven't met yet. What are you hosting, Tim? What radio show are you hosting tomorrow? I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Oh, well, Zane, you do have that. For the last three days, I've been hosting VOCM's open line on another another network. Tom was on with me before many years ago. Hey, no kidding. I know enough. I don't even know of, how know he found enough. the time to join us. He's so impressive and busy, <laughs> and we are so lucky lucky to have him in our presence. Tim Powers, we all bow down to you. <laughs> VOCM, the voice of the common man. That's a great yes. radio station. Okay, so you got you guys are going on and on as if there's nothing going on in Canadian politics. Well, I gotta tell you, there was some pretty big news that came down the pipes yesterday. Of course, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh uh, pushing back at critics of his at critics of his party's agreement to support the Liberal government. The two parties have announced what's known as a quote supply and confidence deal that is set to last until 2025. Both the Conservatives and the Bloc Quebecois have criticized it as undemocratic, but Singh says it's about helping Canadians in a time of uncertainty. We can see what other parties are doing. Conservatives clearly that is not their goal. And just to give another example, under the official opposition to Canada, they cannot point to anything they've done in the worst time that people have been through in the pandemic to get people help. Meanwhile, here's what PM Trudeau had to say in his announcement about the deal yesterday. The Liberal Party has reached an agreement with the new Democratic Party to deliver results for Canadians now. This supply and confidence agreement starts today and will be in place until the end of this parliament in 2025. All right, so let's break this down. Tom, let's start with you uh, putting yourself in the shoes of Jugmeet Singh. How do you think he was feeling waking up this morning? Well, it depends on what he's been getting in the way of mail, because I have to tell you, since I started political commentary and, an- and analysis upon leaving politics four years ago, I've never received this much mail from across Canada. A lot of it from, I would put into air quotes, old timers, people who had been in the party going back years and years. And people are upset. You know, they really thought that it was a mistake. They didn't get a lot in return because if you read this thing, and by the way, the thing is is interesting to try to find out because you've got simultaneous press releases from the prime minister's office and from Singh. We're told because some journalists say they've seen one that there might be an agreement. To my knowledge, as of now, they still haven't actually released the signed agreement, which, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if there are any differences. But that aside, people are just saying, look, what did you get? So there are two things in there that are concrete. One is dental insurance for kids under 12 that will come in this year. The other is a promise, a hard promise to bring in anti-scab legislation. But all the rest, read the text of what of that press release that came out of the PMO. It's all notional. It's all hypothetical. It's all we're going to work towards developing a plan that might enable us to progress as we were always doing in the past towards meeting our look at climate change in that document. There's nothing there. 
And I think that Singh scored well during the campaign on that issue, showed that Trudeau had really let down the side. And now he's signing this thing with him. And there's really nothing credible in there on that key issue. So I think a lot of progressives are still scratching their head, trying to figure out what went on and why this deal was made. Interesting. And, and to that point, uh, Zane, I mean, what does Jagmeet Singh say to voters when he's knocking on doors in 2025, trying to convince them to vote for him and not for Justin Trudeau or whoever the leader of the Liberal Party may be at that point? That's his risk, isn't it? That he er, gets into this arrangement and he invalidates the position that his party has historically occupied because the liberal kleptomania continues. They steal more of the NDP policies. They take more credit for them. They're a larger caucus, bigger voice, their government. And if they're a success, great. It's a liberal success. I think Jagmeet Singh's calling here and perhaps motivation is more so related to his personal legacy versus that of the sustainability and the legacy of the party. Now, that's a bold statement to make. But when you look at it, for both gentlemen, for Trudeau and Singh, this seems to be a legacy play. For Trudeau, a play to say, let's buy us some time, give us a party that's a dance partner on spending, let some of our legacy programs land uh, for Canadians in the next three to four years. And for Singh, this is a gentleman who knows he's not going to be prime minister, let's be clear, and very much uh, to that end. He's now picked two or three things he wants his personal legacy to be known for. Is that enough steam for him in the next election? And the bigger question, is it even him in the next election that's knocking on those proverbial doors, Tamara, is the the big question. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Is it him knocking on the doors? Is it Justin Trudeau knocking on the doors? I think there's so much that can happen between now and then. Meanwhile, conservative leader Candace Bergen went in on the attack. And I just want to jump ahead, uh, Chris, our technical uh, producer, to the first clip from uh, Candace Bergen. Here's a little bit of what she had to say yesterday in response to this agreement. Justin Trudeau has basically said uh, what I told Canadians I would do three, four, five months ago in the election. Uh, I've changed my mind because I actually want to feel and know that I have a majority a majority power. And so I will do basically anything the NDP asked me to do in order to keep that power. Tim Powers, is that fair? Well, tomorrow, allow me some therapy. Coalition, coalition, coalition. OK, I got that out of my system. <laughs> You forgot hey, socialism, hey, hey. Tim. Oh, well, yeah, Zane, now you're really trying to drag me down. Look, I, I, I think Tom Does it matter what we call it, Tim? Does it matter what we call no, well, it? No, well, that's People the thing, right? It doesn't matter to. what you call it. It doesn't matter what you call it, though the conservatives, for a variety of reasons, are obsessed with calling it a coalition. The Liberal and the NDP can do this. That That is fine. Uh, look, I, I think, um, I don't know if it's so much going through the back door if you come out the front door and you're standing there and saying this is the agreement, but as has been said earlier, if the agreement agreement is lacking in detail. It's easier to pick apart the agreement on that lack of detail and what it may cost. Um, Look, I I found it fascinating this morning, as Tom and Zane know, and and you may be well aware too, Tamara, uh, Newfoundland, where I'm doing that radio show in Labrador, very much a a, a liberal province. In the worst days of of Mike Lignati, it it held firm when uh, Tom and, and Jack Layton were opposition leaders, with one exception, and Jack Harris there. People there think it's a bad thing. We did an online poll, not scientific, but there's not a lot of public support. You can't find a liberal in Newfoundland and Labrador where there are six federal liberals out saying anything positive about this. The only person I could find to say something 
positive about the deal uh, with a political jersey on was the provincial NDP leader, Jim Din, who, uh, as Tom alluded to earlier, likes the notion of pharmacare and dental care. That may be the only achievement, but that was fascinating to me in a strongly liberal province. Uh, real quick, Zane, we just got a minute left uh, before our break here, but what do you think, as, as a political campaign strategist, what's going on in the campaigns of the uh, conservative leadership race now in light of this announcement? Well, uh, Pierre's probably kicking himself because he wanted the quick trigger on the leadership so that mm-hmm. he could make a case. But it's also a kind of a win for him because he doesn't have to be viable to the general public immediately. He can make the case that my brand of more deeply conservative populism can win over the day eventually. We can grow our coalition. And if you're Sheree, this is also not bad news for you in the sense that the liberal, the center, the middle of this country is now shifting to the left, gives you much more space, perhaps to Tim's point, of those that want to unite the center, less so unite the left. There's room for Sheree there as well. Yeah, but I'd add one quick thing on Sheree, if I could, Tamara. It's the fact that he wasn't booking himself for a three and a half year ride in the hallways of parliament. Oh, such a good point. He wouldn't even be in parliament. He wouldn't even be at question. All right, we're coming coming up against the break here. Uh, Tom Mulcair, Zane Belgi, Tim Powers, I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan Solomon. More from the War Room coming up after the break. Evan Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And you don't just have Tamara Cherry because it is the time for the war room, being that it is Wednesday afternoon. With us today, Zane Velge, a political campaign strategist and partner at North Weather. He formerly worked with Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi and Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley. Also on board is Tom Mulcair, CTV News political analyst and former NDP leader. And we are so lucky to have Tim. <laughs> gracing us with his presence today as chairman of Suma Strategies. He is no doubt in high demand. Anybody listening to our last segment understands what I just did. Oh, All right. Tamara, you're piling on. I got you as bad as those two. <laughs> okay, we're, we're heading to Brussels. The prime minister is in Belgium on a two-day official visit during which he will also to attend meetings of G7 and NATO leaders concerning the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau just finished his address to the European Parliament in Brussels. Here's clip number three. We cannot let Ukraine down. So let's use all the tools we have at our disposal. He called for action. Here's clip number four, Chris. So we must all collectively step up to provide humanitarian aid to support families affected by this war and already start thinking about investing to rebuild Ukraine afterwards. The prime minister said that we must all continue to send military equipment and lethal aid to help Ukrainians in what he called their heroic defense, not just of their lands, but of all the principles that defend ours. And he ended his speech on this. Uh, Clip seven, please, Chris. As long as we don't take our democracy for granted, as long as we keep working every day to make it better, as long as our partnerships are strong, we can be confident in the future. In the words of Volodymyr Zelensky, light will win over darkness. 
Tim Powers, this is no doubt going to be looked back on as a very significant time in our history. How does the prime minister need to come out of these meetings? What do we need to hear from him? Well, I think we're hearing what we expected to hear from him uh, tomorrow, uh, telling that we all need to stand together. And the messages are all right. But I think and Canada's messaging all the way through has generally been OK, uh, bar some incidences with Melanie Jolie last week on Canadian military and mm-hmm. convening, a, convening uh, ability. I, I think, though, if we want to do more and to be seen as doing more, we actually have to do more. And I'd, I'd reference something General Hillier, former chief of defense staff, said the other day, and not necessarily the no-fly zone that he has called for, but he made two wise suggestions that I think Canada has to think about, and that is sending a brigade, and General Leslie mentioned this to you when you were talking to him earlier, sending a brigade to Latvia uh, to back up that iron wall, as General Leslie referred to it. If we're going to put our mouths, uh, or our feet in line as much as our mouths, we probably need to look at that. The other thing General Hillier suggested, and I think this is a wise suggestion, let's give them some military equipment that actually is useful, uh, not old and antiquated equipment that isn't effective. Hillier suggested uh, Canada perhaps spend a billion dollars to buy um, some new uh, anti-missile, anti-tank, anti-weapon systems, javelin missiles, patriot missiles, words and phrases that are familiar to us. So I, I think, you know, Trudeau's gotten to the place where words are not enough anymore, even though they are important words. You know, we had Mike Blanchfield from the Canadian Press, international affairs writer for CP, on the show earlier, and he pointed out that Germany has recently announced a commitment to step up their military spending to 2%. They were uh, typically around the same as Canada, he believed around less than 1.5%. Zane, do you think that the Prime Minister will come back with a commitment to that 2% in our budget? Uh, there's, it's a very likely possibility. We've heard that there's a, a backlog of, of capital spending uh, in the defense ministry. We learned and, and we've had the government soft pedal that this is an intention of theirs. Uh, we've had them say that security matters more so than ever before. There's also going to be pressure at the NATO meeting, right? Uh, you know, And, and yeah. this is where I am surprised by why the deputy prime minister is, is not on this trip as well, because as good as Trudeau is at words, she kind of adds a substance. I'm surprised it didn't go with the one-two punch, at least for today, the European Parliament. But regardless, we know that Poland wants further peacekeeping. We know Lithuania wants a no-fly zone. We know there's going to be pressure at the NATO meeting. So in 48 hours or so, we should find out where that pressure lands and what more the allies in NATO that do not want a no-fly zone are willing to commit. And for Canada, to your point, that very likely could be that 2% threshold that comes and plays a part in less than a couple of weeks here domestically. Tom Mulcair, what do you think that Jagmeet Singh would say if uh, our minister comes back with that 2% pledge, given the agreement that was announced yesterday between the two parties? He's going to have no choice but to vote for it, isn't he? I mean, that's the whole point of that agreement. This is a mm-hmm. question of confidence, and he'd be required to vote for it. But I don't think it's going to be very difficult for Canada to get to 2%. I mean, we've taken decades to, to get to a place where we're now buying junkyard F-18s from Australia because we've never been able to come to a decision with regard to procurement for a new fighter jet program. We've got 20 million square kilometers in this country, and we own 24 military helicopters that took decades and decades and cancellation and misstep to get there. 23 of them have cracks in the fuselage. So we've got one cracked helicopter for about 1 million square kilometers. We're a joke militarily. It's, It's not that we don't want to give stuff to Ukraine. We've got nothing to give them. 
And the problem is, of course, we've underspent and we've overpromised on NATO all along. We've been great bluffers. That bluff got called last week, by the way, you know, talking about, you know, those brave words. Uh, Mr. Trudeau had a very nice speech that he read there before. But I'll tell you, when the Polish president goes before the microphones and in a seven minute impromptu press scrum says, very nice to have Prime Minister Trudeau Mm -hmm. here, but you're doing nothing in Canada. And you know what? We're still doing nothing. Whereas for weeks, smaller countries like Portugal have just been filling up airliners, taking people to Portugal, getting the rest sorted out, just getting them out of harm's way. We've done bupkis. We've done nothing. And this it really brings up an interesting point around Trudeau's primary skill set, communicating. I would argue yep. that's what it is. You, you guys would disagree, yep. perhaps. But he's no, really no. good at it. I think he's yes. great at it. Yes. And the problem yes. is at what point does over-communicating good words become a liability? You know, you can often say it needs to be scaffolded with action. But at what point do, does in and of itself it become a liability? On the international stage here, with what we've seen Trudeau, uh, you know, perhaps his lack of international fortitude on the India, China file and others, now come to, a, a, you know, to the European Parliament, make these messages and have others say, yeah, it's not that you're not doing uh, anything to scaffold these words. You're doing nothing at all and the words become a liability. Man, that stings. And Tim, Tim are you, you've with, got, with, I sorry, you go got... Yeah, I was going to say, I think you got General Leslie to say something really important, because don't forget, he wasn't just a, a member for Ottawa Orleans. He was a cabinet minister. Many thought he would end up in defense. I think at one point he was the associate minister of defense. He gave a fairly damning indictment of how it wasn't just the, this government, but other governments have failed to prepare for these circumstances. So it's all fine and dandy to throw out the rhetorical genius of the prime minister now. But the failure, as I heard Andrew Leslie say to you, of not preparing and not acting, we're 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 living that right now. Yeah. So so Tim, how how does he come back from that? How how can how, what can Trudeau? He's got to make a commitment. He, he he does have to make a commitment. Whether it be the two percent, whether it actually be upping our force in Latvia, for which we have been commended. That that must be said. But I think he's got to do something more than the Russians are bad. Here's another twelve sanctions against twelve Russians we hadn't found before. It has to be substantive. Tom, was that you jumping in there? Well, no, I couldn't agree more with what Tim just said. I mean, you know, it, try, try, try this test with some of your friends. Justin Trudeau's now in his seventh year in power. Name two things that he's done. So you'll usually get, well, he legalized pot. And then you, the second answer you usually get is a stammer. Um, 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 this is the problem. He, he is an outstanding communicator. I can vote for that. I was a candidate against this guy. He's a great communicator. He memorizes the lines that are prepared for him. He delivers them well with emotion, you know, often with a tear in his eye. But what has that got us? I mean, in Canada, we're a big country with a small population. We've got a lot of needs, a lot of things that have to be figured out. Somebody who has to be doing homework. I mean, that's why it's so interesting that Christia Freeland's now his second in command because she knows how to do her homework. Mm -hmm. But again, as was just mentioned, she's not there. It's Trudeau who's there. And I would love it if we came away from this NATO meeting, having made a firm commitment that Canada will now be respecting that line of 2% of GDP. It's not time will tell. We've got to end it there. Tim Powers, Tom Mulcair, Zane Velge and Zane will be in this chair tomorrow. Thanks so much for joining us. Take care. Welcome back to The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Tamara Cherry, on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
should come as no surprise that the last two years have been particularly difficult for our frontline healthcare workers. Not only have they been working on what should have been their vacation days, not only uh, have they been uh, putting their own health at risk on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, but uh, this has all taken a real toll on their mental health. And the Canadian Medical Association just released numbers from a national physician health survey that was conducted in the fall of 2021. The survey was open for five weeks and received more than 4,000 responses from Canadian physicians and medical learners across the country. Joining us now to walk us through the findings of this survey is Dr. Catherine Smart, President of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me today. So walk us through some of the numbers here. How are doctors doing and, and medical learners doing across the country? I think the numbers are have really, truly been very frightening. And, and I think it's painting quite a bleak picture in terms of the health of our physician population and the people training to become doctors. You know, we're seeing burnout levels uh, that are an all-time high. Over 50% of doctors reporting high levels of burnout, almost double what it was pre-pandemic. So that's very, very worrisome. And then the other trend I, I think that was particularly concerning when we look at all of the access issues uh, with our healthcare system as it stands, is that almost half of physicians in our survey said they're looking at cutting back their work hours in the next two years. So when you combine those two things together, I, I think it really paints a concerning picture about how our health workforce is going to be able to keep, keep going uh, through a pandemic that we don't really know where we're going to be over the next few months. I mean, that the nearly half of Canadian physicians considering reducing their clinical work, that is alarming when you consider the fact that even before the pandemic, uh, we had access issues to, to physicians in this country. Um, and now with the backlog of, of things like surgeries, um, you know, the gamut, to think of that, that access going down even more is a little bit horrifying. So what did you guys find was contributing to this burnout? You know, I think there's there's many things. The biggest factor that people were telling us was just the crushing workload. Um, and I, I think with the pandemic, it, it's happened in a variety of ways. You know, we know that the workload for physicians was already increasing before the pandemic. One of the factors for that is the increasing administrative burden of medicine. So things like electronic mm. medical records, that should make our lives easier, um, have actually been shown to increase the amount of time physicians have to spend charting. And many doctors you'll talk to will tell you that after a full day in the office caring for patients, they're at home another two or three hours that night dealing with their electronic medical records. So things like that make it really challenging to balance that burden. So those are the types of pressures we're seeing in the community. We also know that because our health care system is struggling in so many other ways, and many patients aren't able to get the care that they need, that places a huge burden on families family doctors who are bearing that stress of knowing they can't get their patients the care. Um, So when there's long wait times to see specialists, surgeries are being cancelled, you know, those patients that continue to suffer are, of course, then, you know, seeing their family doctors who don't necessarily have the solutions. And that leads to huge burnout when you aren't able to meet people's needs. On the acute care side of things, of course, we've seen huge pressures on our hospitals, uh, which I think all Canadians are familiar with, just so many admissions due to COVID. And even now that those hospital admissions are lessening directly related to COVID, 
remain over capacity because so many Canadians didn't get the health care they needed during the pandemic. And a lot of those chronic issues are increasing. And then, of course, if you already mentioned the surgical backlogs. So I think mm-hmm. for, for physicians, it's just been, you know, a lot of stress, both trying to staff our hospitals, staff our clinics, pivot to how we reach our patients during these various lockdowns, having to use different and new tools, which had some positives but some drawbacks. And I think when you add all that together, it's a workforce uh, that's really just burnt out by this never-ending workload, but also having to try to deliver care in a system that is really no longer functioning the way it should and and having to to carry the burden of that and and feeling like they're just not able to do the job for patients that they intend to do. And, And that is a very heavy emotional toll. Have have you seen? Did you see any trends from the survey uh, in terms of you know urban versus rural doctors, for example, or or doctors who are in centers where there were higher COVID cases, um, and and did that raise any extra concerns for you know what medical care could look like in different centers? I I'm I'm speaking with you, Doctor Smart from Saskatchewan, and I was having a conversation with somebody just the other day about uh, a doctor in a rural center that might be. Uh, out of business. And if that doctor goes out of the business, um, that has, you know, even more severe consequences for the the population that he or she serves uh, than perhaps a doctor in an urban environment. Yeah, I think there's there's no question that the stressors and the challenges look different uh, for different people depending on where you live in Canada. At this point, these are the preliminary results of our survey, and we haven't released that sort of detailed data, and that's going to be coming here over the next few weeks as we release our more fulsome report. But I think there's there's no question, you know, what you're describing is really important to understand. And, and speaking to you from the Yukon, also a, a more rural part of the country, I, I think there's no question that some of the issues for rural and remote Canadians in terms of accessing care look different. Uh, the issue around recruiting and retaining physicians in more rural places is challenging. And a lot of that does relate to that, the workload. You know, it's not uncommon for a doctor in a rural area to sometimes be on call 24 hours a day, days on end. Um, it can be very challenging to find people to cover your practice if you need to take a maternity leave or just take a vacation or spend some time with your family or even if you're ill yourself. So these are all barriers that make it challenging for people to want to take that type of job on, um, and also just the breadth of practice in rural areas as our as our more tertiary hospitals become overwhelmed. Sometimes they're not necessarily there to support physicians in smaller places as much as they might have in the past, and physicians are left, you know, dealing with just a huge array of problems, and, and that can be very, very stressful. What do you think the government should be, how, how should they be reacting to this? Because we have seen provincial governments, uh, specifically I'm thinking of Ontario with their announcement recently of offering $5,000 to nurses as incentives to stay in the in the province. How should um, our different provincial governments be looking at the results of this survey um, in terms of how they should be reacting to a potential physician shortage as a result of this pandemic burnout? I think we really need our governments to move beyond these band-aid approaches of of sort of, you know, oh, we'll give a bonus here, we'll do a small thing there. I mean, these are are things that don't create any sort of long-term or sustainable change in the system. You know, we have several factors. One is we just don't have enough healthcare professionals in this country, doctors or nurses. We know that from the data. So we need to get serious about an integrated human health resource plan for Canada. If we don't know 
who we need and where and in what areas of health, how are we going to have a plan that's going to be there and ready to meet the needs for Canadians? And that's an opportunity, I think, for the federal government to show that leadership, to map that out, working with healthcare professionals and then working collaboratively with the provinces to really understand where we need to go. So I think that's a big piece. And then I think the second piece is is understanding these systems issues that are no longer attracting people into certain types of medicine, for example, family practice or taking on a practice. We've seen a big shift in what family doctors are wanting to do over the last few years, largely related to the fact the system that they work in is so broken and has become so challenging for them. So if we don't, as you know, our government leaders don't choose to deeply understand that problem and what's going on there and, and really acknowledge that things are changing and our system needs to change to keep up with these realities, um, we're, we're not going to solve this problem. So I, I think there's lots of work to do. I think there's lots of, of us and other healthcare professional organizations who are ready to dig into it with government, uh, but we, we really need to get past this, this Band-Aid approach to the healthcare system. Yeah, all right. We'll leave it at that. Dr. Catherine Smart, President of the Canadian Medical Association, uh, thanks so much for your time and your insights today. Thanks for having me. It's interesting to think of how the pandemic might have changed the conversation around mental health within the healthcare community. I think that that's one of the um, sectors that perhaps didn't talk a lot health uh, before the pandemic hit, and now they're starting to talk more and more about it, just as we've seen with other frontline uh, responders, such as police, fire, and ambulance workers. Uh, Coming up after the break, we are going to speak with a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old entrepreneur. I, I can't wait to share this story with you. It's awesome, and I can't wait to see what is in store next for this little nine-year-old and his grandmother, who we are going to be hearing from. I'm Tamara Cherry, in for Evan Solomon. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So thinking back a couple of years, I think that our oldest child was about six years old when we bought our first game of Snakes and Ladders. And I mean, what what's not to love about that game in terms of teaching kids how to count you know, simple math, identifying numbers, all of that stuff. Well, our next guest was also six years old when he was playing Snakes and Ladders, but he wasn't so much focused on the math and the numbers and the counting as he was on becoming an entrepreneur. Rio McDonald, you are nine years old now. Is that right? Yes. Is it nine, nine and a half? Are you almost 10? Where, where do you land in the nine, in the nine uh, year? A half. Nine and a half. That's very important. Half is very important when you're nine years old. So Rio, bring me back to that day. Three years ago, you were six years old. You're playing snakes and ladders. And what was the idea that you had? Um, I was playing snakes and ladders with my grandma. And then... I love skiing, so we did a skiing one. So I should say that you probably love skiing because you live in Whistler, British Columbia, right? Yeah. So, like, what a lucky kid you are, and what an imagination that you have. So, Colleen, 
is your grandmother, Colleen McDonald. You also join us on the line. Uh, yes. What happened from there? You you uh, you had a way with uh, Rio by the sounds of it and getting his creative juices flowing. Well, he came up with the idea and I just said, well, let's make our own game. And I drew out some lines, but he drew gondolas and chairlifts and skiers and snowboarders. And he was only six at that time, so he couldn't write very fast. So he told me what to write and I had to write it down like, fast as I could and pretty mm-hmm. soon we were playing our own game of of, of uh, lifts and runs <laughs> so tell me tell me Rio how do you play lifts and runs you roll the dice if you land on a chair lift you go up and if you land on a run you go down and you try and get to the top so how long did you play this game Rio before you guys decided to make a little business out of it? Uh, two years. And, and what did your friends think of this game in that time? You must have been showing them the game when they'd come over to your house. She like, uh, that they, um, they really liked it, but they didn't, we didn't have it like made. We just had it on a piece of paper. And then, they, I brought a hat to school with the lifts and runs thing on it, and they all wanted some. Oh, I love that. It reminds me of my own son bringing things to, to his classroom and wanting to share. Okay, so everybody wanted one. So what was the idea that you came up with, Rio? What did you and your grandma come up with? Um, well, what we came up with was um, just a variation on the snakes and ladders. And um, with all Rio's ideas of how to go up the mountain and how to go down the mountain. But how did you how did you take it from a piece of paper to making it as something that was available for for more than just Rio and his friends? Well, there's where Scott and Josie uh, McDonald, uh, Rio's parents, jumped in. They're um, both little entrepreneurs and came up with the idea that. Well, if all Rio's friends like it, maybe there's other people who like it. So they had Jessica Leahy, a friend of theirs, work with Rio's drawings and to make the finished game. And um, they had a few made just to see how it went. And those sold out. And uh, then they ordered another print run in time for Christmas. And uh, now they've ordered, I think, their third or fourth print run. So the stores are really selling lots and people are really enjoying it. And it's a lot of fun. It's really interesting for Rio to be watching this whole process. And uh, he's got some more ideas. Actually, they have a new bike, a new game coming out. Okay. Well, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but now you've really piqued my interest. Rio, you got another game coming out already? We just learned about lifts and runs. What's the new game? Lifts and trails. Lifts and trails. Okay. So tell us about lifts and trails. Is it similar? Is it just swapping out the the ski runs for for hiking trails or what is it? It's mountain bikes and hiking Mm. ones. Of course, I should have known. (laughs) Yeah. And I also want to do a ocean surfing one. So how would you do an ocean surfing one? What would you climb up and what would you fall down in the ocean? Uh, you would have like a scuba diver go down and like a scuba tank going up. 
Oh, good idea. You are hitting all the different outdoor markets, Rio. You're a very, very smart entrepreneur. I want to ask you guys, though, because this started, Colleen, correct me if I'm wrong, but you started uh, posting these things for sale on Facebook. Is that right? When we're talking about the lifts and runs? Well, I haven't been involved in the marketing, just the uh, fun part of, of uh, watching Rio's process on it. But Scott and Josie have a Facebook page for lifts and runs, and now the new one that they've developed, they're developing coming soon called Lifts and Trails. So it's been really, really fascinating as a grandma to watch uh, your grandson come up with an idea and uh, seeing it taken to the next stages. It's been a very fun family project. We've all been involved helping to deliver games. In fact, Rio's been delivering a lot of games with his parents quite often. <laughs> really? Okay, so tell us, Colleen, how can people buy these games now? Well, the games are available at many of the um, stores um, around town. They're available at liftsandruns.com. They're $35 online. And um, Rio's parents are looking for more stores that would like to carry the games and uh, and the uh, ski game and the new mountain bike game. It's been a really fun thing to watch this in the family. So I, pretty proud I love it. Rio. I'm pretty proud of Rio and pretty proud of his parents. I bet you are. Rio, uh, you're nine years old. Do you know yet what you want to be when you grow up? Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> Maybe more board games? Like, you, you sound like a really fun kid. I bet that you'd be like a really fun adult too and you'd be able to just, you're going to be really successful <laughs> if, if you continue <laughs> on with this or whatever you do. But that's good. You don't need to know what you want to do yet. All right. Uh, before we let you go, Rio, any any final words, any any perhaps um, words of advice that you would give to other kids that want to make a game? Um, draw them out first. And then you also have to get an artist, though. Okay. So it all starts with a piece of paper and collaboration. Yeah. I love that. Rio McDonald, Colleen McDonald, thank you so much for sharing this awesome story. Anybody interested in purchasing this game or seeing what Rio is up to next, head to liftsandruns.com. Liftsandruns.com. Best of luck, Rio. Can't wait to see what you do next. Okay. Take Bye. care, guys. Bye. All right. I'm, I'm excited to share that, uh, that story with my kids when they get home from school today. I am Tamara Cherry. I've been filling in for Evan Solomon this week. It's been a blast. I want to give a shout out to our technical producer, Christian, and the show producer, Samantha. You guys have been awesome in supporting me through this. I will be off tomorrow. Zane Velji will be sitting in Evan's chair tomorrow. And from what I understand, Evan will be back next week. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.